invite you to take your Bibles, if you haven't done so, and turn with me to Micah chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 8 through 17 this morning. Our sermon title is Shame and Salvation, and the key words for our worshipers and training are light, shame, and mercy. We have today arrived at the penultimate sermon in our journey through the book of Micah. And it is fitting that the verses before us are chock full of salvation and judgment. All throughout the book, in each one of the three cycles of sermons Micah preached to Samaria and Jerusalem around the time of the Assyrian invasions, we have seen these two themes, salvation and judgment, mixed and mingled together beautifully to remind us of coming judgment, which comes swiftly and at a time that we often do not expect. And we are also reminded of the grace of God, which is freely offered to all who would have it. Last week, in the first seven verses of Micah 7, we saw Micah's, really his final word of judgment proclaimed against the people of God and her leaders. He compared Israel to a vineyard that had been picked clean after the summer harvest without even a cluster of grapes or a single fig left. In other words, what he said is that there's not a single righteous leader in Israel. But nevertheless, despite that in in the judgment that would come, the utter chaos, panic, and confusion into which the Lord would hurl Israel, Micah says that he would keep his eyes fixed on God because he knows that God would hear him and deliver him. This steady resolve of Micah's that we saw last week, this faith and hope to which he clung, it, they, it, this resolve serves as the hinge uh, upon which this chapter turns and, and what we see in the rest of this chapter flows out of everything that he says in verse 7. Because you see, the rest of chapter 7 does not contain a single word of anger against the people of God. God has spoken. Judgment is coming, Micah says, but it shall not, it cannot, it must not have the final word. The verses before us contain a beautiful and hopeful back and forth picture of the salvation to be poured out upon God's people and the judgment to be poured out upon His enemies. Each of the three sections in the verses before us today, verses 8 to 10, 11 through 13, and 14 to 17, they logically build on one another, vividly escalating the glories of Israel's salvation and the horror of the pagan nation's destruction. The, me- the message then of verses 8 to 17 culminates in verses 18 through 20, in Micah's hymn of praise to the pardoning God who keeps covenant. Lord willing, we will consider the culmination of Micah's prophecy in verses 18 to 20 next week. Today, we shall look in verses 8 to 17, and we'll take each section in turn. So let's read these verses, we'll outline them, and then we'll get to work. 
Micah 7, verse 8. Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against Him until He pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light. I shall look upon His vindication. Then my enemy will see. And shame will cover her who said to me, Where is your God? My eyes will look upon her. Now she will be trampled down like the mire of the streets. A day for the building of your walls. In that day the boundaries shall be far extended. In that day they will come to you from Assyria and the cities of Egypt. From, the, from Egypt to the river. From sea to sea. From mountain to mountain. But the earth will be desolate because of its inhabitants for the fruit of their deeds. Shepherd your people with your staff, the flock of your inheritance, who dwell alone in a forest in the midst of a garden land. Let them graze in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall lay their hands on their mouths. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent, like the crawling things of the earth. They shall come trembling out of their strongholds. They shall turn in dread to the Lord our God. And they shall be in fear of you. As we look at these verses this morning, we will see uh, three things according to the three sections. In verses 8-10, to 10, uh, we will see Israel rise out of the ash heap of judgment despite the taunts of the wicked. Second, in verses 11-13, to we'll see Israel rebuilt and restored and the wicked laid low. Third, in Verses 14-17, we will see God's people lavishly fed by the shepherding hand of God and the wicked utterly cast down. So first, look with me then, verses 8-10, to where we see Jerusalem's confession of faith and God's provision of salvation to bring them out of judgment. As we mentioned a moment ago last week in verses 1-7, to we saw Micah, Micah acknowledge that God's people were to be judged. Michael's, Micah's people, God's people were to be brought low. They were to be punished for their sins. They were to be thrown down into utter confusion according to verse 4. Nevertheless, he offers here in verse 8 a word of caution a word of warning to those who count themselves the enemies of God. He says, do not rejoice over me, O my enemy. And he says this. He offers this word for this reason. He says, this judgment shall be short-lived. When I rise, when I fall, I shall rise. And when I sit in darkness, the Lord will be to me a light. This is now the third time God's enemies have been warned against taking up a taunt against 
the people of God. Micah has now warned them three times. We saw this back in chapter 1. Verse 10, he commanded, tell it not in Gath. Remember, Micah was instructing those in Gath, a town there in Judah, to refrain from rejoicing over the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And in chapter 5, when the horde of mercenary nations surrounded Jerusalem at her very gates, provoking her, saying, let her be defiled. Let our eyes gaze upon Zion. We're told, yet they do not understand. They ought not to speak such things because they do not know the mind of the Lord who had actually gathered them there against His anointed to execute judgment upon them. And now in chapter 7, we see this third and final warning to the wicked that they ought not rejoice over God's people when they fall and sit in darkness. Why? Because... God will raise them up. And He will Himself be a light for them in darkness. Micah continues, he says that in this judgment from God, He will not resist. He says, I will bear, in verse 9, the indignation of the Lord. And he does this for two reasons. He says he will bear God's indignation because he knows that he has sinned against him. And, like we saw just a moment ago, it is only temporary. It will only last, he says, until God pleads his case and executes judgment for him on his behalf. We saw last week Micah's waiting is not uh, passive inactivity, but it's hope. And trust in the mercy of God that leads to fearless, fruitful living. He says, despite the coming judgment, I will set my heart to hope in coming vindication. Why does Micah need to be vindicated? We see it in verse 10. His enemy, the pagan nation surrounding Israel, especially Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria here personified, they mocked and shamed Israel in her disgrace, saying, where is your God? This question is essentially a quote from Sennacherib, the commander of the Assyrian army, as they surrounded Jerusalem. Judah had sinned against God and was to be judged by God. The pagan nation saw. But nevertheless, Micah, standing here, sort of in the place of God's people, he says, I shall be vindicated. I have sinned against God, but I've put my trust in God, and there is a day coming when I shall be shown to be in the right through faith in the Lord. And he says, his enemy will see this vindication, be covered in shame, and be trampled down in the streets. The temporary judgment against Jerusalem would eventually recede, but the judgment poured out on those who mocked God's people would not. The application of these verses here um, is... Uh, Quite vast. Many things we could say. I want to consider a few of them here. Believer, have you fallen? Are you this day laid low? 
Has sin wrapped its cords around you as it seeks to bring you down to Sheol? If so, would you resist? Strive. Press on. You shall not stay down forever. Are you stumbling about in darkness? Are you blind with no sense of direction? Do you know that God is a light for you? Do you know God is a light for you? Do you know that He will bring you out into full day soon enough? The darkness shall not overwhelm you. It cannot, for the Lord Himself by His Spirit dwells in you. And He is light and in Him is no darkness at all. Right now, it may be that you can only see the path ahead well enough to take one step at a time. But that's all you can take anyway. Whether you see a foot in front of you or a mile in front of you, all we can do is take one step at a time. But God is light enough for that. The second point of application is that we ought to humbly submit to correction when it comes. We've said many times through this book that we can't be sure of all of the various reasons that suffering comes upon us. But we can take each suffering, each moment of suffering and anguish, we can take it as an invitation for inward reflection and renew our repentance and faith toward God. So believer, are you bearing the chastening hand of the Lord? Do not resist it but humbly receive its intended correction. Indeed, at the time, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it, the author to the Hebrews tells us. How might we make best use of the hand of God that has been heavy upon us these past several weeks? and shall likely remain upon us for perhaps even years to come. Shall we not bear it patiently, looking for hidden sins, and ever working to grow in our likeness to Christ? We can do this like Micah because we know that one day we shall be vindicated. What is this vindication of which he speaks? Theologically speaking, you can think of it as your, the public display of your justification. You see, right now, the Christian, the one who has believed into Christ, has been justified before God. But are we justified in the sight of the world? Not exactly. In the West, for decades, there have been a cacophony of voices trying out, uh, crying out for harsher restrictions on our freedom of religion. Those things, crying out for those things at a minimum. And this is not to mention, in addition to that, the Christians all over the world who right at this very moment fear for their very lives in light of intense religious persecution. And so no, I do not believe that we have been fully vindicated yet. And so when does this happen? Most plainly, this shall happen 
on the great and awful day when all men stand before God to give an account for our lives. For those who have believed into Christ, we shall at last finally be declared just and in right standing with God publicly. All of creation shall look on and see our vindication. What of those who have not believed? Those who have rebelled and continue to resist God and suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They shall, we see in verse 10, be covered in shame and trampled down like mire in the streets. And so this word of hope to the believer is a word of warning to the unbeliever, but it contains a kernel of hope as well. Because for those perhaps who even now look upon the Christians in their lives, perhaps you look upon the Christians in your lives, friend, and you see their suffering and their anguish, and you silently or out loud perhaps you ask, where is your God? He is not as far as you think. And while you currently stand condemned before Him, He offers you mercy now. Will you have it? Because there is a day when it shall be too late. But now, perhaps, we pray, is the day of salvation. And so here we see Israel rise. The people of God rise out of the ash heap like a phoenix. Despite the taunts and the mocking of an onlooking world. Secondly, then, in verses 11 to 13, we see Israel then rebuilt and a shelter made ready for God's elect while the world endures the judgment of God. Here in these verses, the walls of the remnant are rebuilt and enlarged, and God's people flock into it while the rest of the earth is reduced to rubble. The day of this happening, when does this occur? It should be clear enough based on everything else we've seen in Micah this day when he says, in that day, twice here. This is the same day that he's, of which he's already spoken. In chapters 4 and 5, we see a, a prolonged consideration of the latter days wherein it would come to pass that God's mercy and His glory would be exalted above all the earth and His people would be redeemed out of their sins and sorrows by Messiah. And as Micah saw it, there would be uh, initial fulfillments of this hope throughout the life of Israel, which would come to a climax in the life of the Messiah on earth as He lays down His life for His people, inaugurating a new creation and His rightful reign over the cosmos as its Redeemer as He purchases it back from the forces of darkness to whom it had been consigned at Babel. And so Micah here, he's building on his confession of faith in verses 8-10 to of this confession of the coming justification of God's people. Coming vindication, the judgment of his enemies. Micah says, on that day, let's rebuild the walls, extend the boundary in light of this hope. 
So who shall constitute this vindicated people of God whose boundaries are here to be expanded? Apparently it shall be uh, comprised of people from all over. God's kingdom, unlike the gods of the nations, His kingdom would not ultimately be contained within a few square miles in the Middle East. His kingdom would expand, we're told here, from sea to sea, from mountain to mountain. The earth and everything in it belongs to God. In Micah's day, God's people were very small. In Christ's day, they were even smaller, it seemed. But that is changing. And God is rescuing people from all over. The expanse of His kingdom is seemingly unlimited. He says here He would conquer the earth with kindness and extend His borders from Egypt to the river. The river here is the river Euphrates, the river of Assyria. And Egypt and Assyria then are designations that symbolize the borders of the pagan world and God's enemies. They represent God's kingdom extending without end even to those among His enemies. And so God is providing and preparing a safe place for His elect. But He says the earth shall be desolate because of its inhabitants and the fruit of her deeds. In essence, these verses here in 11-13 through 13 contrast the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. God's kingdom shall grow and expand and thrive forever and unto eternity as He brings the cosmos into willing obedience to His command. The kingdom of men, on the other hand, the earth, those left outside the walls, shall be left desolate. And so do we take away from this? A few things. First, remember, there is no room for ethnocentric thinking in the kingdom of God. God's grace extends to people from all over the world. People of every tribe. People, language, and nation. There is no group, no people group, more or less worthy of saving than any other. God is after them all. Second, this should cause our hearts to erupt in praise. As we look out to the world and we see how many people still don't know Christ, passage like this, a text like this, can give us great motivation and encouragement and hope to be bold witnesses for Christ knowing that He is bringing His people in. And third, we should be warned that There is only one safe place on that day. It is inside the walls of the kingdom of God. Think of the final plague that hit Egypt in God's rescue mission which He mounted to redeem His people from Egyptian bondage. There was only one safe place within the walls and behind the door covered with the blood of the Lamb. The walls of which we now speak for ourselves are not physical walls, 
but they are nonetheless real. The current plague that God has sent upon the world and the panic that it has induced is but a foretaste of judgment to come. There is a day when the city of man shall be brought to nothing. And so we must ask ourselves, will I be left standing outside to endure God's wrath? Or will I abide in the shadow of the Almighty in His safe dwelling place? Well, let's look thirdly and finally then, verses 14 to 17, where we see the promised luxurious rest for God's people and God's utter rejection of the wicked. In verses 14 to 15, we see the promised blessing of restful grazing for the people of God as they behold wondrous things from their Maker. And in verses 16 to 17, we see the threatened judgment come crashing down on the wicked as they come crawling out on their bellies in humiliation before God. In some ways, we've, we've really hit Michael, Micah's now in uh, verse 13. It's kind of his final word uh, of prophecy even. And he sort of he turns to prayer now. He, he begins to wrap up everything he said and he begins to pray. And he makes this request in verse 14. Shepherd your people, O Lord, the flock of your inheritance who dwell alone in a forest. This word forest is the same word used in chapter 3 where we're told that the temple would be reduced to a wooded height. So he says they dwell in a wooded height or um, a thicket in the midst of a fertile land that doesn't belong to them. Their portion is useless. And he pleads with the Lord to let them return to graze and be at ease and rest in Bashan and Gilead as in the days of old. These two places mentioned here were given to Israel at uh, the beginning of Israel's history when God rescued them out of Egypt and gave them land. He did, it so, he did so by mighty wonders. But these two places were lost and regained uh, a few times throughout Israel's history, finally to be lost to the Assyrians actually during Micah's ministry. And Micah now prays for Israel's restoration to its original prosperity as in the days of old, he says, when God first chose His inheritance. So he makes this request and the Lord and verse 15 responds. He says, As in the days of old, when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them marvelous things. What are these marvelous things which they shall behold? Well, to give Micah a sense of what he's promising, he, he has to go back to the most significant event of miracles and redemption that they had witnessed to date. Really, it's the most significant event of miracles and redemption in the entire Old Testament. Micah says, give us rest, O Lord. God says, okay, do you remember the wonders, the marvels that I put on display for you when I rescued you out of Egypt? Okay, it'll be like that. Only better. 
Now, how do we know it's better? We know it for certain because we have the rest of the story. One of my favorite passages in all of Scripture is uh, 1 Corinthians 2.9. What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor has the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love Him. Paul tells us that we cannot even imagine what God has prepared for His people. It is so much greater and beyond anything we can think. His greatness, the greatness of His mercy, he says, is beyond searching out. You know, I hear a lot of people ask questions like, what, what will heaven be like? What will eternity be like? Will I get to do this? Will I get to do that? Will I see Him? Will I see her What will we do? Apparently, according to Paul, heaven will be, put it this way, exactly like you imagine it, or far better. So, will there be bacon in heaven? Absolutely. Or something better. Whatever that could be. Will you get to play ball in heaven? course or something better now obviously we understand the central joy of heaven is that we spend it with the lord the lord of life and light who laid down his life for ours and we know that that is the joy most principally awaiting the people of god But we know that all the joy of heaven, in whatever form it takes, is unimaginably great in comparison to what we can picture now. Heaven is not a disembodied experience where we float around on clouds like naked babies playing harps. Eternity is far greater than that, certainly. But it's far greater than anything we can imagine. And so whatever you think heaven might be like, believer, it will be like that, or if not, it will be only because it is far better than that. And so, brothers and sisters, we can remember this truth of what God will do for us and in us. We can remember this in these difficult days. And all future difficult days. Because while we currently struggle under the weight of many heavy things right now, since the fall right of Genesis 3, we are constantly surrounded by death. And yet these days we are perhaps for various reasons especially aware of its grip on the world. Brothers and sisters, death is a conquered foe. He is still writhing about as his life escapes. And he still aims to take down the sons of Adam with him. But he has been conquered nonetheless. And one day he shall be completely crushed under the foot of the Son of God. But this is good news only for those who put their faith in the Son of God. We see this reflected in the rest of 
our passage in verses 16 to 17, Micah says that in contrast to the rest and delight of the people of God, those who stand opposed to God and His people shall be brought to nothing and left to lick the dust and spend their days crawling in the dirt. The nations will see the works of God and be ashamed of all their might, which has been brought to nothing in light of the glory and the might and the power of God. They shall be unable and unwilling to speak, unable to hear. All that will be left for them to eat, unlike the grazing flock of God, is the dust of the ground. Their strongholds shall not keep them safe. Unlike the walls of the city of God in 11-13, their strongholds will do nothing for them. They shall have no recourse but to come out trembling and lay themselves down before God in utter dread and fear and terror. Friends, do you see the difference between eternity for God's people? Excuse me and for his enemies. Of course, we, we hear an allusion here to, in verse 16 to Genesis 3. There in Genesis 3, God declares war against his enemy, Satan, and curses him to lick the dust like a serpent and spend his days crawling on his belly. Thus it shall be for all who follow in his steps in revolt against God. Interestingly, also, the idea of shame occurs twice in this passage. Here in verse 16 and back up in verse 10. Shame plays a prominent role in the judgment in Genesis 3. So what happens to the shamed enemy of God? He crawls around in the dust like a serpent until he's finally trampled down like mire in the streets. Perhaps. Another statement in Genesis 3 has now sprung to mind. In God's declaration of war against Satan, He lays him low and He threatens His final doom. The woman's seed and His shall do battle and the seed of the woman would have His heel bruised by the serpent as He crushes the head of the serpent and tramples Him down like mire in the streets. And so here we arrive at that which separates the righteous and the unrighteous. How are some people to be vindicated and some to be cast down like filth and trampled in the streets? How are some to be safe behind the walls of Jerusalem and some left to the desolate world beyond? How are some people to be brought into green pastures and led beside still waters and some left to feast only upon gravel? Simply, it is this. What is your relationship to the long-awaited Messiah who is promised in this book? Do you know Him? Have you believed into Christ? I pray if you haven't that you would. His mercy alone shall shield us from the wrath of God that is coming upon the world for sin. And while many hear this, they may turn their backs, stop their ears. For those who will listen, 
Those who will believe, mercy is yours to have. Reach out in faith and grab hold of it today. And for those of us who love God with love incorruptible, who have loved His appearing, your shepherd will pick you up when you fall. He will be a light to you in darkness. He will vindicate you on the great day of judgment. And He will trample your enemies in the dust. He will keep you safe in His kingdom. He will lead you to pleasant pastures upon which you may feast forever. And He will, for all eternity, show you marvelous things. Things which are too great for you now to comprehend. But it will all be yours in Christ. And Christ will be yours forever.